Have you ever uh, stopped to consider just how freakishly pagan the days of the week are? I don't mean how you celebrate them. I mean just the names themselves, how, how crazy pagan they actually are. Look that up on, not now, but sometime look it up on Wikipedia. Like, it is crazy, all of the cultures that attribute the days of the week to the exact same gods, just with different names. Like, Sunday is, can you guess? The sun's day. Moon day, Monday. Uh, Tuesday is from uh, an old, I think, Norse uh, god, Tiu, but that was Mars. That was Mars. Wednesday, Odin, which is Mercury. Uh, Thursday, Thor. We've all heard of Thor. We've seen the movies, right? That's actually Jupiter. Friday is Frigga, Frigga, which is apparently the same as Venus. Saturday, Saturn. So all of them are named after planets, but i.e. are named after the gods that stood for those planets in pagan mythology. Did you know that? Okay, all right. Yeah, I knew you. You're smart. You're a smart group. You knew that. Um, but here's something interesting that I know you don't know. I bet, I bet you don't know this. When the Jews got to Babylon, when they were carried off into captivity, and of course there was repentance going on, the people that were there, you know, God had worked on their hearts, and they get there, and believe it or not, you go all the way back to the Babylonians, and they were using the exact same names, of the, not, as, not Monday, too, but in their own language, they were using days to signify those same false gods. And so one of the things the Jews did, and they didn't have those names for the days of the week. They just called it Sabbath, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. That was how they named the days. Well, when they got in there and they had to start using these Babylonian names for the days of the week, they thought, well, we better honor God somehow in spite of this. And so they assigned psalms to various days of the week. And the first day of the week, which is what day, class? Sunday, the first day of the week, they assigned the Psalm 24. Psalm 24. All right, that's the, one, that's the one Ryan just read. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it being the first day of the week, um, guess what Psalms the priests would have recited that day? That very day, what every Jew would have recited on that day if they, if they had access to it or memorized it. They would be reciting this very chapter. Huh? Mind blown. You're like, well, it wasn't that fascinating. I, you know, get off of TikTok for a moment. It's fascinating. It's, this, this is good stuff. This is, this, 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 this is as good as it's going to get anyway. Um, yeah. Um, the funny thing about that psalm is, is humorous, not humorous, interesting, is that when you read it, it reads almost like it were written after the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It was almost written like it was uh, almost poetry unto that event. But here's, what's, uh, here's what we know about the psalm on the surface as far as its original writing and, and, and how it stood within the Old Testament. It is a psalm of David. It is introduced in the Pentateuch, uh, in, I'm sorry, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the translation out of Hebrew into Greek, which would have been the Bible of Jesus' day for the most, for most part. Um, it, it actually has the heading in that, a psalm for David on the first day of the week. Yeah. 
When, uh, when you read it, the original context would suggest it was a psalm approaching Jerusalem on the part of a pilgrim because it says, it asks the question, who will ascend to the Lord's hill? So you have a very graphic uh, picture there of people coming up to Jerusalem in order to worship Yahweh at the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would be within Jerusalem. And of course, at the time David's writing this, he's probably actually bringing the Ark with him. You remember that event where they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which had not yet come to Jerusalem? This is the city of David, Jerusalem is. Um, they had conquered it. It became uh, part of the Jewish nation. And, uh, and when they brought the Ark up, David dances before the Lord. And this could be very much the psalm that was written for that occasion. With me? Get the background. Get the lay of the land? Okay. Um, here's the big idea today. <laughs> Prepare to meet the Lord, because that's what's happening here. You've got kind of a collision setting up. Like in every movie and cartoon through the years, you've probably seen it at some point, where you've got people racing from the, you know, from the uh, right side of the screen, people racing from the left side of the screen, and then back, and then back, and then you see that they're, they're, they're going to collide. And that's kind of what this is going on in this psalm. It was actually kind of a difficult psalm for me to lay out. The three parts of the psalm are really clear. It's trying to understand what the overarching thesis should really be because it's so kind of contradictory but here I'm going to give them to you in advance and then I'll give them to you as we go along but there's three kind of truths that 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 um, describe the sections of this psalm first of all the Lord is sovereign and is therefore entitled to our worship and then we are worthy but required to worship and then we must receive him worthy or not. Those are the three ideas, and I'll come back to them now as we, as we go through this. First of all, the Lord is sovereign and therefore entitled to our worship. All right, God is sovereign over everything. You've heard me say this before, and you're like, yeah, Jay's a Calvinist. He says stuff like that. That's just the Bible, people. God is sovereign, which means that it's all his it's all his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. By the way, it's believed that the Jews picked Psalm 24 for the first day of the week because it harkens back to Genesis 1.1. It has echoes of the beginning. In the beginning, God created the earth. So it's his. Everything that's there is his. It's his real estate. When you look through a telescope, you know what you're looking at? You're looking at God's stuff. That's what you're looking at. When you look through a microscope, guess what you're looking at? God's stuff. When you look in the mirror, after you get past the shock, you're looking at God's stuff. It's all his. That's what this is saying. Then look at what it says in verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers give you just a quick little bit of background. In the ancient Middle East, a lot of the pagan people, not necessarily Israel, but, but the people around them believed that rivers and seas represented chaos. And so what the psalmist is probably saying here is God has established the earth. It will not be moved, though there is all this chaos around it. God is not only the creator and entitled to it, he is the sustainer of everything which he has made. It will not be moved. Now, where's this all headed? Where's he going with this? He's setting up a logical argument here that God deserves worship. Everything is his. The Lord made it all. He owns it all. 
And if God has made everything, every molecule, every atom, every subatomic, subatomic particle in the whole universe, then it all belongs to him, and therefore all worship belongs to him. No one is due more honor than is deserving of God. No idol or person displaces his prerogative of worship except by transgression. It's his. It's, it's, when we take that to ourselves or we place that on a God, sun, moon, you know, Venus, Mercury, whatever, we are stealing from the rightful owner of all honor. Now draw that into the New Testament understanding. So you've got the original sort of setting in the Old Testament, Psalm 24, uh, David coming up into the city. Put it back into the New Testament context with Jesus. Can we say of Jesus what David is saying about the Lord? Absolutely. Not only in Greek, the word used for Lord in the Septuagint in Psalm 24 is the same word that is used when we say Jesus is Lord. So it's, it's, the, it's the exact same. Uh, but, but look at what it says in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So because Jesus is God the Son, because he is the one through whom all things are made, we can say precisely of him as he comes and as he approaches Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we can say the exact same thing, that everything, all worship is due him. Eight verses later, also in John, we read this, which strikes home and reminds us of Palm Sunday. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him think about that think about the very people who every single sunday would have read or recited this psalm with this psalm perhaps ringing in their ears they see jesus coming into jerusalem and they they miss it the the gates should have opened gladly and received him Abraham Kuyper famously said these words. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine, mine. It is all his. And yet they refuse to see that. They refuse to recognize his sovereignty. And you will run into that in your life with people that you try to share the gospel with who don't want to hear. And you'll run into it on Facebook and and Twitter and other places like that. And you you will hear people, now maybe I'm the only one that's heard this message, but have you ever heard someone say something, oh, I don't know, like, why are you imposing your religion on me? Anybody ever hear that or... Yeah, they say it all the time. <laughs> you, you hear that all the time, and you're like, well, I don't know. I guess I should just shut up. Um, how, about, how about try this next time? Say, you know, I'm not imposing anything. I'm just telling you what God says. Uh, he says this is his, and you're his, and so he's sovereign over it. I'm, I'm just conveying a message. Don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. To God belongs all obedience and worship. It belongs to him. It belongs to the Lord. It belongs to Christ. Secondly, we are unworthy but required to worship. So God deserves all worship because God is sovereign, but we 
Though we are unworthy to worship, we are required to worship. That's a little weird. Have you ever heard of a double bind? How many have heard the phrase, the double bind? Yes? Okay. Those, okay. If you go on and study science or philosophy or theology, for that matter, there's this thing called the double bind, which is kind of like, it's kind of like Sophie's choice is what it's kind of like. It's, it's when you're up against two competing requirements that, that really don't seem to work together, but both of them are necessary. Look at, look at this one again. Verse 1 through 2, we've got God's sovereignty, and therefore God deserves to be worshipped. And if we look at the, the end of it, you know, from 7 through 10, we, we find that we are commanded to receive him in worship. But then you've got this little midsection here where it asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? David has written this. The temple is not yet there, but he anticipates it. He has planned the temple. Solomon will actually end up completing it. And the psalm is looking forward to a day when the people of God will stream to Jerusalem, will come up, they will ascend. It's a city set on a hill. It's elevated, so you're always going up to Jerusalem. They will ascend to the Lord's city, and then they will ascend to the, to the temple mount, and they will bring offerings. And the question is, who is worthy of doing that? David's basically saying, how exactly are we going to do this thing that's kind of impossible? On the one hand, God has to be worshipped. On the one hand, he requires worship. But who are we? How do we do do that? How How do we go there? And he answers the question. He says, well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, as I said earlier, here's the problem. That's basically another way of saying what Jesus said when he asked, was asked what the greatest commandment was. Do you remember that? What did he say? Love the Lord your God, all your heart and mind, soul and strength, and the second one likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that, this is basically the same thing. We're supposed to have a pure heart, a pure heart toward God. No place for idolatry. A heart that just gladly, willingly obeys God. And at the same time, we're supposed to have clean hands. We're not to swear falsely. That's basically saying I shouldn't do or say anything that would harm my neighbor. Now, does David conceive in his mind here as he's writing this of a people who are literally perfect? Isn't that a description of perfection? Uh, you don't need anything to come to God. You're fine the way you are just so long as, as you have a pure heart and clean hands. Hmm. David didn't even have that universally throughout his life. There were, there were some times where he kind of missed it badly, if you want to think about it. And then Solomon, Solomon the one that completes the temple when he's dedicating the temple. One of the things he says as he's talking about the whole sacrificial system that God would be pleased with what, they've, what they do and what they bring and, and if they get dr- driven into captivity that God will hear from, from that habitation that he'll forgive their sins and he, and he basically says because no one is without sin no one is without sin and they are not sinless they are not, they are not pure in heart they, they, their heart is not where it needs to be but he's describing a people who are yielded and repentant. They come bringing sacrifice for their sins because they know they've fallen short. 
He will receive, this person that's thus described, not a perfect person, but a repentant person, will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now look at that. Look at that for just really quickly. He will receive, now if he were perfect, he wouldn't need this. He will receive blessing from the Lord and what else? Righteousness. Well, if he's perfect, does he need to receive righteous? Righteousness? No, because he'd be righteous. But these are, these are imperfect people. They are coming to God as God has designated. They're coming to him through that, through that system. And God is giving them righteousness. The Lord is the one who gives that, who gives justification. Even under the Old Testament uh, way, way of looking at these things, there was still a means, looking forward to Jesus, by which they could come to God imperfect as they were and enter into his presence. Right? The only problem with the Old Testament people of God, the Old Covenant, is that their heart was in the wrong. Their heart didn't get where it needed to be. Their heart was, was wicked. Their heart was hardened. The prophets talk about a day when God would take that stony heart of theirs and turn it into a heart of flesh. The, outwardly, they were circumcised, but, but their hearts were uncircumcised. And so the prophets looked forward to a day that would come when their hearts would be circumcised and they would be able to have this, this proper communion with God. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he comes to inaugurate the new covenant, the new covenant in his blood. He comes as the Lamb of God who fulfills all that imagery from all of those sacrifices that the worshipers of the Old Testament were to bring to God in his temple. And they not only reject him, but they deliver him over to the Romans who then crucify him, at which point he is shedding his blood for the sins of his people. We all like sheep have gone astray, and yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, says Isaiah. Verse 6 summarizes this second session by saying, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. What kind of people seek the Lord when the Lord is a consuming fire? When the Lord is righteous and, and we are unrighteous. Many in the world today hear of God's righteous requirements and they simply turn away. They, don't, they, they, they see that and, and they stop there. That double bind idea, their solution to the double bind is God is holy, I am not, curse him. That's their response. I don't want to have anything to do with a God that, that thinks he's more righteous than I am. <laughs> Where does he get off? Well, he's sovereign. Yeah, doesn't matter. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And that's where so and how do we speak to a generation like that? Because that's the generation that we're living in. We're living among a people who who reject God on the face of it. They, 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 they don't want to accept any of his righteous requirements. Well, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. Acts 17:30 states that God commands all men everywhere to repent. For those who come to a conviction of sin, there is the promise that if they truly believe, if they come to Christ and receive him as they are meant to, that they will be called children of God, that they will have a pure heart and clean hands before him because of this. This word should also convict us as believers. You know, sometimes because of the grace and mercy that we know that we have in Christ, 
We can become lackadaisical. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Yes, it is Christ's work and Christ's righteousness, righteousness by which we stand, but we are to live that out. The Bible says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If our hearts are full of idolatry, then we are to turn from our idols. When we come to the Lord's table, we are to take it with, with, a, with gravity because, yes, we are impure in our hearts and our, and our hands are not clean and we need to confess that. And then with, with all of our heart, we are to turn to him and allow him to keep working out in us the, the effect of our salvation. The righteousness is from him, but we are called to live that. Finally, we must receive him worthy or not. Um, yeah, there is a holy God who sovereignly has the right to be loved and worshipped. We are called to seek him with a pure heart and clean hands. And then comes this glorious image, this, this thrilling image at the end. And that is the picture of God approaching Jerusalem. This image fits with the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city uh, as we talked about it, but it also prefigures the coming of Christ into Jerusalem. And listen to it now. Think about this. Just, I, I love the thought of, of this psalm being so entrenched in the Jewish mind for the first day of the week. Listen to it. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, last I checked, gates do not have heads, that they then are able with some ears that we're not seeing on these gates to hear and, and, and then lift up these heads that we don't see. What, what does it say? Who is he really talking to there? He's personifying the gates of Jerusalem. He's personifying Jerusalem itself, the people of God, and he's saying to the people of God, open your lives, open your your hearts receive to yourself the king of glory. Open. If David had not explained who the king of glory was, who would we have thought it was? Probably David, right? King of glory. Yeah, David uh, wasn't shy sometimes about knowing who he was. And, uh, and you might think, oh, he wrote this psalm to just dedicate to himself the king of glories. He was coming into Jerusalem, wasn't he? Open up that the king of glory may come in. But then he asks the question so that nobody misunderstands. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This is the Lord, not David. The Lord is coming to his people. I, I think of the name Emmanuel, which we talk about at Christ's first advent. God with us. He is the king of glory and he's strong and he's mighty and he battles for his people. He delivers them. The beauty of this psalm is this crescendo of identifying the Lord of glory, his identity, his greatness. Yeah, it's not just his right to be worshiped, but we see him as he is and, and our hearts rise to, to, that, to that place of worship where we truly want to worship him. Verse 9 kind of echoes verse 7. I don't know if you know, it's almost word for word the same. That's so typical of Hebrew poetry, the way it builds. You have the A line of the, and then the B line of the verse. Of, so they kind of match and kind of rhyme in their thought. And here it's like one verse, verse in between, then another verse that, that, that echoes. It's really a beautiful way of expressing this. 
But if God is holy, why would you invite him in? If God is a consuming fire and we are unclean people who dwell in the midst of an unclean, people of unclean lips, why would we invite him in? Yes, you know, the Lord cleanses us and forgives us. He makes us righteous. But this is still a scary proposition. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So he's coming with power. He's coming with heaven's armies. The Lord of hosts, that means armies, right? You knew this. There was a song a few years ago about the, 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 the um, God of angel armies. Do you remember that one? I always liked that one because we say the Lord of hosts, but it means the Lord of armies. When Jesus came into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, what we're seeing is the substance, not the shadow. When David came in with the ark, as important as the ark was, and as wonderful as the temple was, Those were the shadows. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in as the substance. He he came in as the glorious king, the savior, the the mighty king, the one who vanquishes his enemies. That, That is him. He comes to purify his people's hearts. Isn't that glorious? He came, John says, and tabernacled with us. I love that that picture. That Jesus came, when it says he dwelt, the word there is related to the idea of tabernacle. Jesus came with all of that Old Testament imagery. So when we read this particular psalm of David that they read every Sunday, lift up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. Don't you hear the gospel in that? Wouldn't that just be another way? We could just, we could just adopt that. Some, you know, on Mondays, we could, that'd be the way we'd share the gospel. We just come up to people and say, hey, lift up your head. (laughs) Yeah, they might not really get it. We might have too much explaining to do, but that's just such a picture. He came to his own. His own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Prepare to meet him. If If you belong to him, if you belong to him today, take this to heart. If you belong to him and you're struggling with sin, or God forbid you're not struggling with sin, it's much better if you're struggling with sin than if you're not struggling with sin. Do you know what I mean? I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm not saying you should sin all the more that grace would abound. I'm saying, but if, but, but if you are aware of sin in your life, you should be struggling. If you've stopped struggling and you just embrace the sin, that is a bad, bad course of action. That will not bring you happiness. If a man clutches fire to his bosom, the Bible says, guess what's going to happen? He's going to be burned by that. He's going to be burned. Look what James says. And tell me, it's funny how God works. You know, I thought of this passage in James, and once I got there, I was just typing along, working on my message, and I got, I got there, and I realized James is thinking about Psalm 24 when he writes this. Tell me if I'm wrong. Just look, look at this. So, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, right? There's the two trains coming together to collide. Cleanse your hands. Where have you heard that before? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We do not take the grace of God and the kindness of God lightly. We turn from it. We turn from sin. 
And we turn to him who gives us righteousness and blessing and salvation. And with all our heart, we lay hold of him and we turn. We do battle with sin. We put it to death by the work of the Spirit in us. If you're not a believer today, um, here's the dirty little secret. Um, You only think you belong to yourself. You only think that. That is an illusion. You think that you have full ownership because in your mind you think that a random glob of mud got hit by a sort of random strike of lightning and then out of that ooze, suddenly out of mud and electricity came this little spark of life and a simple cell, an endlessly complex simple cell came into being out of nothing. And then out of that, with all the genetic uh, material it needed through um, all of the various adaptation, it, 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 you, and that's you. And you just got spat up by this, this meaningless random universe. That's what you think. And so, of course, you belong to yourself as much as anyone. But here's the, here's the thing. You're, that's not true. You're not random. You are a creature. You say, I'm a creature? Yeah. Because you were created. Yeah, you say, well, God didn't make... God made everything, everything, every subatomic particle is God's. He called it into existence. You are his, whether you know it or not. Listen again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. But the problem, my friend, is that you are not pure of heart and you do not have clean hands. So how will you ascend to the hill of the Lord? How will you go up and meet him? Because one way or another, we're all going to meet him. But we're going to meet him under just different, different circumstances. How will you meet such a God? Are you ready for that? Will you throw open the gates? Will you welcome the Lord of glory? You say, that's scary. But here's the thing Jesus said. He said, if anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. I will not cast him out. If, If our hearts are moved by the word of God and we want what he has for us, as scary as that is, this king of glory, he promises that he will come and dwell with us. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king of glory. And I know that as a believer, that, that every believer is happy today and joyful that you have come in, that the doors were, were flung open and, and that you have come to dwell in us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, give us a pure heart and clean hands. Not just, not just in that positional way that, that you have declared us righteous, but Lord, let that righteousness work itself out in us. We want that. We desire that, Lord. Help us to quit and be done with the things of this world so that we might love you better. And I pray, Lord, today that if, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that, that you would do business with them today and, and Lord, that, that they would see you they would see your glory Lord that you would work on their heart and open it so that you might come in and that they might have eternal life I ask this in your name Amen